So whatever they show you just comes from inside your head? It's not real? He was silent again for a moment and then said, Just because it's inside your head doesn't mean it's not real. Hello, once again, and welcome back to the Remedial Magic Podcast. My name is Brady, and with me, as always, is my brother Baylor and our good friend Delbert. How's it going, guys? Okay. It's going, man. It's a Wednesday. Week's halfway over. Let's go. It is moving right along. The week is halfway over. We get to go camping this weekend, Baylor, so that's pretty exciting. Yes, it is. I don't know what you're doing this weekend, Delbert. Nothing on the weekend, but I get to take tomorrow off work to go to five doctor appointments. Oh my Damn. gosh. Yeah, it's kind of terrible. Why are you going to so many? I have a respiratory specialist. I have something on my leg. I have a optometrist. I have a meetup with a nurse about how to wrap some stuff. And I can't remember what the last one's for, but they want me there anyways. Is this all at the same place? Four of them are at the same place. One's at a eye doctor's location. That sounds fun. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> Jeez. What a day. Well, regardless of that exciting news for you tomorrow, we, uh... We're not returning, right? Last week we returned to the book. We did. Two weeks ago was the interview with Leo about yes, Bagsy Beetlehorn. Okay, I'm a little bit confused about where we're at in the show because... I just listened to the interview this week, so I've got one more to catch up on, and then I'll be fully caught up. Um, but regardless, we do get to return, even though we haven't really left, to Alexander Quick and the Lands Below. Today we'll be talking about chapters 17 and 18 of the book. Uh, I put these two chapters together in one arc because... One chapter is basically fully committed to Alex's father, and the other one is fully committed to her mother, Claudia. And I thought that was a fun uh, kind of juxtaposition that we get to see. And um, on top of that, I think we could have just done one discussion about each of these chapters individually. So I'm sure we'll run over time again. But before we get there, any Harry Potter news this week from either of you? I don't have any Harry Potter news, but there was a question on the Discord that I thought maybe, since you guys have vastly more experience in Harry Potter fanfiction than I do, maybe you could answer better than I did. Uh, Domestic Ghost wrote uh, at Remedial Magic Podcast, what is the best fanfiction author of all time? Which obviously is very open-ended, but just given my my lack of... uh, fan fiction knowledge i said that i'm pretty sure in my opinion it has to be in variety just because of his the effort he's put into these books and once again caveat i don't really know much about fan fiction uh but i also said that the harry potter and the nightmares of futures past author i thought was pretty good as well uh but i i didn't know if you if you guys had any thoughts about that uh it's a good question i guess as far as who the best fan fiction author of all time is. It's also a question I can't answer, I think, because I haven't read... I've read a lot of fan fiction, but to be honest, I've only paid attention to the author of two stories, and one being Inverarity because of this podcast, and the other one being 
Leo, the author of Bagsy Beetlehorn, because we interviewed him. Right. I don't know specific fan fiction authors well enough to answer this. Uh, I so and I think it's totally subjective, anyways. Right. Like what you think might be really good is not going to be the same as what another person thinks might be really good in terms of fan fiction writing. And on top of that, even further, what do you classify as fan fiction, like true fan fiction, and not as well? You know what I mean? Alexander Quick is a story set in the same universe, but aside from that, relies basically for nothing on the main series. I say, getting into the conversation we're going to have today, but... But you know what I mean? Whereas there's a lot of other fan fictions that are set directly in Hogwarts, even at the same time as Harry was there. So, And those ones maybe take less creativity because they rely on the source material more heavily than something like Alex Quick does. So as far as what's a who the best fan fiction author of all time is, I don't know. The best in my experience, however, is probably in Variety. Uh... But again, that comes from my own personal experience of having read these books and paying much more attention to these books than I have a lot of the other fan fiction I've read. There's one easy answer to this. It's who made the most money, and it's whoever wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. No, um, you know, on a more serious note, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, you have to look at how removed everything is from the source material. So you're right. Alex Quick has very little to do with Harry Potter. Bagsy Beetlehorn also has very little to do with Harry Potter, but it's based in Hogwarts. But then you get stuff like Nightmares of Futures Past or another great fic with a <laughs> questionable author in, um, what is it, Year of Darkness? Yeah, Dumbledore's Army in the Year of Darkness. Yeah, greatly written, but without the original series, it would mean nothing to anybody. So, you're right by saying what even is considered... Fanfic, is all of it in one giant category, or is stuff different? On top of that, I would just ask, who's your favorite, or who's the best author? Not your favorite. Not fanfiction, just normal author. You still could not narrow that down to probably even 20 or 30 people. You're never going to get a consensus on any question like this, you know? And uh, Since you're never going to get a consensus, while it might be worth answering the question... It's definitely not worth having an argument with somebody about or whatever, because uh, in the end, this is a totally a projection of opinion versus fact. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> it's correct. Yeah. It doesn't even matter. I would go so far as to say the fic that I'm reading now, the Arithmancer, which I'm through year one, which I guess would be book one or whatever, even though it's all one book. I'm through year one of that. I think that writing is on par with professionally published writing that I've read, without a doubt. And so I would throw that author in, but as I've said, I don't pay that much attention to who the authors of Fix are. I couldn't tell you their name at this moment. I'd have to go look it up. So while it's a great question, everybody who has an answer is correct for the same yeah. reason. You know what I mean? It's it's a hard question because it's similar to like asking somebody who's the best sports player of all time, who's the best basketball player of all time, who's the best baseball player, etc. Or the best, uh, you know, rock band of all time. 
You know, it's it's always like it's like a fluid thing. It's always whoever's at the peak is always changing, so to speak, you know. And so I, I feel like it's going to be the same thing for authors because there's always going to be new authors. There's always going to be new ideas. And it, it's just it, it, like like you guys are saying, it's it's an impossible question to answer that anybody you might get one or two to agree on, but you're never going to get a majority to agree on it. I'm so glad you mentioned rock bands because I want to give a quick shout out to someone. And uh, this isn't a good shout out. This is a shameful shout out. I asked my friend, who we'll call uh, we'll call him Hank, who are two very famous rock bands. And I meant it in a way of like, what are the first two rock bands that come to your mind? And he said the Black Keys and the Foo Fighters. Nice. What a horrendous answer. Like, <laughs> skipped over the Beatles, skipped over the Rolling Stones, skipped Queen, and went straight to the Black Keys. Shameful. I guess maybe the best way to determine who the, quote, since you brought up sports, at least with sports you have statistics to back up your arguments. You know what I mean? Right. This person won six championships. This person's about to become the all-time scoring leader in NBA history, whatever else, blah, blah, blah. You could apply that same thing to to fan fiction authors and go to the major fan fiction websites and see who has the most read story. You know what I mean? And just pick that person because their story is the most popular if you want to. But that doesn't eliminate the opinion side of this argument. And that's like just like with your friend Delbert saying the Foo Fighters and the Black Keys. He's saying that because he likes those bands, I'm right, sure. Right. You know? And so if he thinks they're the best, then that's a truth that we can't pull from him. You know what I mean? But it's a it's a great example of people who say that like a a mid-level author who's written one successful book is the best author ever, instead of somebody like, for example, George R. R. Martin. And it's just because that's what they like, it's their opinion. And so I think that applies here uh very heavily. Now, there is something you can measure with what you're saying with stats. You can measure raw speed of writing. So who would win? <laughs> Leo of Bagsy Beetlehorn or Stephen King in a speed writing competition? I'll tell you what. If Domestic Ghost on the Discord wants to develop an algorithm that takes into account, like... How many kudos you get versus like combined with word count combined with speed of publication and several other things to create a raw score. Then our official podcast stance will be that that algorithm can determine the best fan fiction author of all time. But until that day, the answer is there isn't one because it could be all of them. True. <laughs> you know, sounds good to me. Is Fifty Shades of Grey a fanfic at this point? Because it started as one. Well, the first one probably is. I don't know. I've never yeah. read it. It's a fanfiction of Twilight, it's, I've heard. Right. It can't technically be a fanfiction because the actual Fifty Shades of Grey has no reference to the Twilight series. I'm sure the original fanfiction did. So but confirmed, the, if you take like 12 words out of Alex Quick, it's not a fanfiction. Sure. I don't know. I, we're <laughs> diving way in here. True. Again, write it down. Another idea for a good episode, like a good one-off episode, what makes a fan fiction. Um, 
I know that Fifty Shades of Grey was born out of a fan fiction of Twilight, which is weird. It's so right. weird knowing the premise behind both of those stories. But, uh, I don't know. I can't even recommend people read Fifty Shades of Grey because I never have, and I don't think I will. Would you recommend Twilight? Yeah, it's fine. I watched the movies again recently. Don't really hold up. I don't think they were that good to begin with, but they're just not good. I think the books are pretty good. I think the first movie... I like the first movie of Twilight. I like the first movie of Twilight more than I like the books, and it's because I like the like the the mood that's set in that movie. It's like kind of like it, the movie even though it's about angsty teenage vampire love is very cozy because of like the setting of it and stuff. So, it's fair. I like parts of the first movie and I like the battle in the last movie that never actually happens. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Re- regarding 50 shades of gray, uh I can't totally remember what the plot line was, but I, I've actually read the entire series. Obviously very adult books. Um, but I think the, the plot line I thought was pretty good, if I remember from reading them. So I guess if you if you go into the reading them with that mindset, then they might be good. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, but if it is a fan fiction and we're going based on just pure performance, it probably is the best of all time. <laughs> Um, in other Harry Potter news, though, last time we were recording, I entered us into a, uh, like a lottery system to get tickets for this Harry Potter at play experience in Chicago, you know, a trip that I can totally afford to go on and whatever else. And the great news is that we got selected to buy tickets. The bad news is that I didn't check my email within the 24 hours we had to click on the purchase tickets button. So uh, we are the exclusive podcast that almost went to Harry Potter at Play in Chicago. (laughs) Wow. What a great title. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that it looks really cool. Uh, It's going to travel around the state, so I'm sure there'll be a chance for us to get a little bit closer to it. And then my last thing I was going to say before we started was uh, the fan fiction I'm reading, which I've already mentioned. After finishing the first 23 chapters of it, the first like 90,000 words or so of it, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Nice. I legitimately think it's the best fan fiction I've read. Wow. Okay. Again, it's based on Hermione, but if Hermione was, instead of just being an all-around good student if she was a savant at math and how she uses math to navigate the magical world. And also in this book that I'm getting into now, they're starting to learn about how math is the key component of spell crafting and developing new spells. And it is just very interesting. It's a main line. Fan fiction follows the same plot, essentially, but with a focus on Hermione and how she changes things, as well as taking a lot of the nonsensical stuff out of the story and instead putting in like rational thinking by the adults that exist in the story. And it's, it reads nicely as an adult. In fact, I think if I was just starting Harry Potter and I had an option between Sorcerer's Stone as it was written by JK Rowling and this fic, I would choose this fic for adult reading versus Sorcerer's Stone as a kid. You know what I mean? 
pretty crazy. Wow. Sounds good to me. I will definitely check it out. Brady recommends a awesome fan fiction, and Baylor recommends an awesome book and movie to read with your young kids. <laughs> yeah. Never Especially if they're more interested in coloring. <laughs> uh, moving along, though, I just wanted to, before we get into this, uh, remind everybody that we have social media. I don't think we have any emails this week. No emails. Uh, I did see an email, actually, in our one of our folders in our inbox that was uh, talking about how uh, old... InfoWars guy, Alex Jones, is a big old dummy, so that's interesting if you want to check it out. But no emails that pertain to our podcast. However, you can contact us at the underscore RM podcast on Instagram and Twitter, or send us an email at remedialmagicpodcast at gmail.com. All that stuff's in the link tree. Should we jump into the main discussion finally? No, I think we should talk about the entirety of Star Wars first. I don't know anything about Star Wars. My contribution to that would be not great. Absolutely tragic. So as I said, we are going to discuss chapter 17 and 18 this week. Baylor, would you like to summarize these two chapters for us? Sure. So, chapter 17 is titled Abraham Thorne, and you guessed it, it has to deal with Abraham Thorne. Uh, if you remember, we left off with Alex facing Abraham in the forest after Max and her went into the forest. Um, and basically, Alex and Abraham have a very long conversation about what he's been doing, why he's been doing it, and I like how Brady wrote, why he sucks so badly. Um Many, some questions are answered, I would say, but also some other questions are uh, risen from the ashes. So, um, stay tuned for that one. Then, in the same chapter, um, Alex heads home for Christmas break, and uh, we she also receives a gift from Max, which is very special, obviously. Then, heading into chapter 18, leave that world behind, Alex moves back into her old house, but it's actually the new house because it's been constructed newly, but the same but different. Weird. Um, Archie and Claudia are working once again, so Alex is able to buy gifts for all her friends and send them off. Uh, surprisingly, the Seaberries make a visit, which is interesting, of course. Um, then it's Christmas morning, more gifts are exchanged. And uh, Alex opens all of the gifts from her friends. Um, then, after Christmas, Alex confronts Claudia about Abraham, which is very interesting. Uh, finally, Alex makes a plan to find out if Angelique is into David, because she had a very long discussion with David, and David became, basically became the male version of Anna in this chapter. And then finally, one of the biggest surprises of them all, Alex decides... What her ele- what her elect uh, excuse me, Alex decides what her elective will be for the spring semester. Very exciting chapters. Uh, parts of these chapters are weird. I think. Yeah. Especially parts of chapter eighteen are a bit strange, but chapter seventeen is really where the bulk of this discussion is. I think, and it's because. As you said, Baylor, Alex and Abraham 
have a long conversation. And really, it's a conversation we've been waiting for for I can't tell you how long now. When did we start recording this podcast? I can. It's roughly like a book and a half worth of time. It's been like a year, right? Yeah. Almost <laughs> a year, actually, to this point. And uh, Abraham Thorne is finally here in person, not just his raven, not just his picture in a locket. He's finally here in front of Alex. And uh, Alex approaches this in the most Alex way possible, I think. She is pissed. <laughs> She's yep. like completely, totally skeptical of her father, which I was happy to see that rather than her just like running up to him and giving him a hug. Right. Right. In fact, he tries to give her a hug and she just refuses. She basically, I don't know. I guess if you're Alex in this situation, you know, he's your dad, but do you see him as your dad? You know what I mean? Or is he just this person? I really can't imagine what it would be like to, like, see one picture of your dad, not know him your entire life, find out he's one of the most wanted men in the uh, Confederation in this case, and finally see him after you're 12 years old in person. It's I'm sure it would be a uh, crazy emotional experience, and I completely don't blame her for how she acted when she first saw him. I'll say this much. I'm not 12 and I'm not a girl. But I had a dad that I didn't see from ages 3 to 16 or 17 maybe. And when I finally saw him again at a family reunion, it was like a bro hug more than anything. And then I saw him a few years later and it was the same thing. So I feel like I can definitely relate to this, but also I don't know if everyone would relate in the same way. Was your dad also a potential international war criminal? Um, <laughs> funny you say that. Close-ish. There was some international drug stuff was gonna going say, on. <laughs> one of those three, <laughs> one or two of those objectives stick. Yeah. We'll just let the audience decide which right. ones, you know? Right. That. That will uh, be our next uh, in-between episode is covering our next deep dive. <laughs> our next deep dive will be my dad. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense that Alex is approaching this in a kind of a cautious way. You know, I on top of her having not met this guy, not knowing who he is, she's probably feeling sad that he's never reached out before. In this situation, I think I would also probably be a little bit frightened of the guy. You know, knowing his reputation, knowing that I'm in here alone with him, I'd probably be a little bit scared of him as well. We kind of see, too, like, she almost is a little nervous because Abraham, obviously, is a very stoic person, you know, very, uh, just a powerful presence. And, uh, you know, we see Alex, she doesn't really look, look him in the eye too much. She... um kind of talks back to you know like i don't know but alex is weird because she she also like pushes the limits a little bit you know like she's talking back to him and and all this stuff so it was an interesting interaction i don't know i don't know how i would respond i've never been in that kind of situation obviously it was i wanted to get into her attitude towards him as well because you're exactly right she talks back to him she kind of gives him the business a little bit 
And at certain points in the conversation, uh, while he's very patient, he certainly uh, gets looks on his face as though he's about to say, okay, that's enough. Uh, But Alex, what authority does he have over her? You know, as a parental figure, he basically has none at this point. He's been checked out of her life for her entire life. So I don't really think that she's in the wrong for for responding back in these ways. Uh, He makes the point, in fact, that she asks very pertinent and serious questions, and I think he's not really expecting that from her a little bit. Or maybe he doesn't know what to expect from her, but she certainly doesn't let him get away with just saying, like, I'm your father, I all I do is care about you. She knows that if that was the case, he probably would have made more effort or something. I definitely think he didn't expect what she was giving to him, especially because he... He kind of, you know, chuckled a couple times and and said, I can't remember the exact adjective that was used, but basically along the lines, I didn't realize that you were going to be as stubborn or or I should have expected you to be that stubborn and stuff. And so it it was clear that he maybe was expecting her to be like, oh, dad, I'm so glad to meet you finally, you know, but then obviously she, she wasn't. And so I think he learned a lot about her maybe in that interaction. I also think they both raise a pretty good point throughout this where very early on uh, Alex like accuses him of not being there and he says well I was being watched what do you expect like I was we were at our worst on the run when you were born and since then it's been just watched by agents all the time but here he is meeting with her essentially on school grounds seemingly not a problem so I can see why she's like So if it's such a problem, then why is it working now when surely there's a lot of people watching now that two of the siblings are together as well? That's a great point. I gotta be honest, I don't buy his story. Uh, There's a few reasons I don't buy his story. I think, I don't know if Alex catches him in a lie in this chapter, but I think the readers can catch him in a lie in this chapter because he's talking about how He always knew that she was safe and that she wasn't wanting for anything and that if she had been, that uh, he would have made sure to take care of her in that way and all this this stuff talking about how he's been paying attention to her life and following her even though he hasn't been present. But in almost the same breath, we find out that he didn't even know that Claudia had been obliviated by the Confederation, right? Alex tells him that and he just kind of says, he's not happy about it, but he says, I'm not surprised. And to me, at least, that indicates he didn't even know about that. So how much attention is he actually paying to that situation if he didn't even know that the the mother of his child that he cares about so much, supposedly, has no idea that his child's even magical? There was was that instance, um, but there was also... There was one other thing. I can't remember what exactly he said. Um... But he said, like you had said, he was, he's been watching her ever since, watching her grow up to be a, a formidable young woman and everything. And then she asked him a question, or he, he asked her a question about Claudia, and, and she, was, she said, or Alex said, um, well, wouldn't, wouldn't you know that if, if you were actually watching us? And so it's, uh, it, you do bring a good point that maybe there is definitely some untruths there that he's, that he's been saying. I also have a theory that I want to share, but first I want to ask both of you, 
If in book one, in the very beginning, the kappa in the pond had dragged Alex underneath and drowned her, would that circle of protection have saved her, do you think? It's an interesting question. I guess it depends if Abraham Thorne is like all the other pure-blood wizards that we've stereotyped over the years and that they don't really take into effect what non-wizards can do necessarily. Because if that's the case, then no. He well, wouldn't have protections in place for a creature, I think. I would say he has some sort of non-wizard protections in place since it stopped the bullet. It's true, but the in- the intention of the bullet was coming from a wizard, you know? Right. Wasn't the purpose of the Thorn Circle to begin with to prevent people who knew what Abraham was up to from de- doing something bad to Alex? Right. Right, a Kappa doesn't really know that necessarily. Right. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Because here's my thought. If the answer is yes, if the Thorn Circle was going to protect her against anything that was going to kill her, then it makes sense on his timing of reaching out to her with the letter, of reaching out to her in person finally now, because maybe he didn't have to watch over her as long as the circle was intact, but as soon as it broke, he's become more present. That would make that would make sense. That's an interesting spin on things, for sure. It makes him seem less uncaring than he seems, maybe in this chapter, if you look at it that way. Uh, I wonder if it's that, or if it's just him reaching out, because now Alex has her own level of notoriety. You know what I mean? Uh, If he learned through the grapevine that Benedict Journey tried to kill Alex, and she didn't die, and then he was able to go back and find out these other things that she was able to do, defeat the Kappa, uh save herself using Charlie when she fell off the bridge. If he was able to find out any of this stuff, it would be in his best interest to be like, oh, this is another person that I can use to accomplish the things I'm trying to accomplish. So it could be either way, but the way you're putting it, if that's the case, it puts a better light on Abraham than if he just is like making excuses and lying and saying, I was paying attention when he really wasn't. Right. I also want to reflect on one thing you just said there of, oh, look, here's someone else I can use for my plan, which makes him sound bad. But also we're coming from Harry Potter where, yeah, sure, Voldemort used whatever tools he could to get what he wanted. But so did Dumbledore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting to hear you phrase it that way. And it still kind of leaves us wondering what the situation is with good old Abraham. Well, didn't you guys get... I don't know about you guys, I guess, but I got the distinct impression that he was essentially giving her the same treatment that Dumbledore gave to people all the time, right? Telling, like, white lies or untruths, being reassuring in some areas while also using that reassurance to manipulate people's thoughts into into different, like, framing their thoughts in different ways to make them think that what he was doing was totally altruistic when really behind the scenes it wasn't. Right. Like, I got very much that type of vibe from this conversation. It's like that Harry Potter summary where it says, Oh, yes, I haven't told you, Dumbledore said. Yeah. And that's the whole story. (laughs) I don't know. Did you get that vibe, Baylor? 
Um, I honestly didn't really see the similarity, I guess, here. I wasn't really thinking about it when I read it, but I didn't see Dumbledore and Abraham, like you guys were saying. Um, I, I, I do like how you pointed out, Delbert, that both kind of did the same thing, you know, used other people to get what they wanted. Um, it, it'll be, I'm interested mostly just going forward how Abraham will use, maybe not use in the, in the, in the bad sense, but, you know, uh, interact with Alex or go on adventures with Alex, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I can't imagine that this book will, or the series, I guess, will continue with this Abraham in the shadows, you know, uh, Alex being watched continuously kind of vibe, I guess, going forward. I think it's very interesting that he used the word rebellion openly here. He's trying to start a rebellion. He's trying to start a revolution. And so while the Confederation might have him label as an enemy for other things that might or might not, may or may not be true, he is definitely an enemy of the Confederation. He is openly stating his intentions to remove Huckstein from power and put either himself or I assume somebody who's sympathetic to his views in power instead. I couldn't believe he was telling this to Alex, to be honest. Yeah, he was pretty open about that part. And I mean, he seems to understand the consequences too, because Alex says something about won't people die. And he says, yeah, when there's a revolution, there's bloodshed. So, I mean, it's a little bit more straightforward, I think, than we're used to seeing Alex here. But, uh, it's interesting that he's so open about it as well. What makes him think he can trust Alex with that information? He knows that the WJD is going to come talk to her. I don't think it matters. I think that the government already knows that's his plan. Yeah, I suppose you're right. He didn't really give specifics. I was just going to ask, do you guys think that Alex convinced him to, to tell him those details? Because she said in that conversation, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm not a little girl or whatever. Um, and then... He goes on to tell her all these, uh, you know, rebellion and, and how there will be bloodshed and all this stuff. And then she kind of starts feeling like, oh, maybe I overstepped by saying I'm an adult because I don't want to hear this. I mean, maybe if we look at it in a different light, I guess, uh, maybe this is his attempt to reconcile with Alex is just to be completely open about his role in the situation so that she understands a little bit better as well. It's hard to say. I think uh, that's all good and interesting and that's all fine. And it's probably more important for the story, but I want to talk about the fact that he also just admits to, yes, he met with Voldemort yeah. at one point. Oh yeah. Not only Voldemort, the dark convention too. We finally get another like, viewpoint of the dark convention from someone who's met with them so you're right he talks about voldemort and how he wanted to just seize power and how he went there specifically to see what that meant for the confederation rather than to align or like claim him as an enemy or anything along those lines so not necessarily anything terrible to just see what somebody's trying to do i guess this is it's like akin to the U.S. president going to sit down with Hitler to say, what exactly are you trying to do? 
I mean, that happened. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. It's like the same <laughs> type of interaction. And so, I don't know. It's just very interesting that, because that makes it, I don't know, that statement makes it seem like Abraham has the best intentions for the Confederation in his mind, right? He's not meeting with him as an ally, but he wants to figure out, okay, what exactly are you going to do after this? Because then I assume he's coming back and saying, we got to get ready if something's about right. to happen. Yeah, I, I see in your notes, Brady, how you wrote, Huxine spun this to paint him as a traitor. So the way I kind of took this whole thing, and it could be completely wrong, I could have misread it, obviously, but is that he kind of went to see Voldemort on maybe the Confederation's orders, maybe on Huckstein's orders. And then as word got out, and obviously as Abraham outed himself as, you know, the head of the rebellion against the Confederation, then Huckstein spun it to paint him as, oh, he went over there to, to cohort with, with the Dark Lord, you know. That's kind of the way that I understood it. Uh, so it, it was, in my opinion, an interesting point of view about that visit, whether it was Abraham doing it for himself or Huckstein ordering Abraham to do it. Um, you know, and then it was spun negatively towards Abraham in the in, in the future or whatever. It's the way I understood it as well, to yeah. be honest. I think this happened at a time when Abraham Thorne was still a in good standing representative of the Confederation. And then when he started gaining political capital and started rising up to a level where he could challenge Huckstein, Huckstein used this to his advantage to say, by the way, this is what this guy's been up to in his spare time, you know? Right. So I guess now the question is, if everything we've read is true, this means Huckstein sent him over there with a plan to basically discredit him or turn him against the Confederation? Or maybe even not with that plan in mind at the moment, and then it just materialized later, right? And then Abraham Thorne, who is now essentially an enemy of the state, decided to try to take his revenge on Huckstein. So now our question, if everything's true, is... What the fuck, Huckstein? <laughs> yeah. Why'd you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, political power, right? Like, yeah. I, I think Huckstein was probably legitimately worried about losing his spot, his place as the leader of the Confederation, to Abraham Thorne, based on what we know about Thorne and how he rose to power. I don't it's, know. It's very interesting if everything's true. It's kind of, I mean, it would be, it would be almost the perfect weapon because, you know, they're keeping it secret most likely because I'm sure people would freak out. They're like, oh, they're sending a political representative of the Confederation to see Lord Voldemort, who is taking over Britain. But then, then he can turn it and make it public and say that my guy did that, or maybe not even my guy, this guy did that to try to you know, uh, become a traitor to the Confederation. So it's almost the perfect the perfect political weapon for Huckstein to use. Good, good to know as well that the American wizarding community is the same as the normal community in that there can be genocides overseas, doesn't matter, <laughs> yeah. as long as it's not where the oil is. Big time problem. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that today as I was reading As long this. as it's the Brits. I mean, what do we lose? Some sheep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, one last thing from this conversation. Do we get confirmation that Max is doing something for Abraham while he's at Charmbridge in this chapter? 
feels that way. Yeah, I I agree. I think, well, one, I mean, he said he, Max knows he expects me to, or he I expect him to keep an eye on you. So we know that there's that part. I, I don't know if that's a specific order or not, but. And then, you know, just, just his avoidance of the whole Moore's, Moore's Morta Society stuff. Like, her telling him, Abraham, to tell Max to stop and whatever. And he was like, ha, 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 no. You know, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, like He said a bunch of fancy stuff yeah. in replacement of just saying no. Yeah. I'll say this, though. He really seems to spec, respect, respect everyone's autonomy. He doesn't talk about Claudia, says ask her. He doesn't tell Max what to do. He doesn't tell Alex what to do. He just meets with her and kind of has that moment, doesn't like demand her to go do anything. So, I mean, he's not really using anyone as a pawn right now that we can see. And he kind of flatly refuses to tell someone how to act or tell people secrets. He does. He's a very interesting man. Yeah. He's I a kinda, cool character. I kind of had a thought on that. And I think it's because that way, if they are investig or they are interviewed by the WJD, they can't, you know, they're they're not perjuring themselves by, you know, they don't have to say, oh, Abraham Thorne gave me this order or whatever. Like Claudia can tell, you know, if she knows, obviously, she can tell Alex all about Abraham Thorne, you know, what he was doing, all that stuff. But as long as it doesn't come from Abraham Thorne, like a meeting, then. The WJD is going to be like, oh, whatever, you know, because they probably already yeah. know. Well, it's also just like the exact opposite way we're introduced to Huckstein, right? Huckstein meets Alex and five seconds in is like, oh, and if you ever hear anything about your father, here's my card. Reach out to me. Like yeah. he's very demanding and telling her what to do rather than respecting that autonomy. I don't know how to feel about Abraham Thorne at this point in the book. I don't think anybody does. You know what I mean? Yep. I, I just still don't think know. he's the good guy. I don't even know if Max knows how to feel about him. And he's met him a few times. Yeah, well, Max, I don't think he does know how to feel about him. But regardless, uh, this conversation wraps itself up. Um, Abraham takes his leave and... Alex and Max head back up to the castle, and Alex just asks Max what he saw from the Bogart when they went through the Mors Mortis initiation, and they kind of talk about that a little bit. And really the outcome of the conversation is Alex saying, so it wasn't real, it was just in my head. And Max just quotes Albus Dumbledore for some reason here, just says, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. Which is basically a direct pull from the final chapters of the Harry Potter series, right? But additionally, I think what he's saying is very poignant for the situation. You know what I mean? He's telling Alex, just because it's something that you're scared of doesn't mean that those fears can't be true. You know what I mean? Can't come true. And I think this is Max sort of saying in gentler terms... You need to be careful regardless of the situation. You know what I mean? You need to watch your back no matter what's going on. The most, the interesting thing with this interaction for me was there. there's a line where it says Alex realized that Max maybe wasn't talking about her Bogart, but he was talking about his. 
And I just really, now I'm really wondering what his was. Obviously no one, well, you guys might know, I guess, if you have read all the books. But now I'm really wondering. So hopefully that, hopefully we'll find that out. <laughs> clowns. Probably just clowns, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, But yeah, Alex goes home. At the end of the chapter, she goes home for Christmas. Max gives her a gift, and she gets on the bus, and she goes back to uh, whatever her address is, 207 Maple Street Avenue, or whatever it's called. And, and, Maple uh, Street Avenue. <laughs> that's where the chapter ends. And it picks right back up in chapter 18. I guess it doesn't really pick right back up. It just flows very smoothly. There's like no time jump at all. Because we immediately get a description of Alex moving back into her house. Which is a new house because she or somebody burnt her old house down. But it's also her old house because it's almost the same. There's just like a few small changes. You know? It's like the kitchen's on the opposite side. Alex's room is in the same place, but a little bit bigger. There's a couple of doors that exist in different places. Uh, to me, the thing that stands out the most about this is that it's... When is this taking place? In the 2000s or something, right? Uh, Why are they putting wood ago, paneling huh? in a new in new construction? I've got another question In the 2000s. For you. That makes no sense. Wood paneling is the ugliest way to do the inside of a house and it's the 2000s yeah and they're putting wood paneling inside their house i have another question about the construction if we want to go there yeah she's coming back to the newly finished house correct uh-huh in late december yeah just south of chicago yeah no problem how are they working through the six feet of snow abraham thorne we saw the blizzard last year <laughs> what the hell abraham thorne oh he's he watching cleared the weather it. yeah right okay Weather wizard. If you finish the exterior of the house when it's warm, though, you can work on the inside the whole That's time. That's true, but I feel like they kind of do both. I don't know. If you're a carpenter, right in. Why would you put wood paneling inside of a house in the 2000s? I don't know. Delbert, I'm not a carpenter, paper. but uh, I know for sure that they, they built the outside before they built the inside. <laughs> also, wood paneling is hideous. <laughs> Just to Carpenters, that right well. in. Makes no sense. Another reason to dislike Archie Green. You Freaking know what? wood paneling inside of his new house. I'm going to reach out to my drug lord dad because he's a carpenter. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say that part of this first bit of this chapter is a little bit sad. And it's the fact that it's stated in there that Claudia and Archie are more excited about their house than they are for Alex to come back to their house. Golly. The poor girl. I can't even imagine. I just don't understand, I guess. It's kind of funny seeing these two people that she views as her parents, essentially, just not caring. And then uh, four pages back, there's a guy she's never met that seems to care pretty deeply for her. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't do you know. Think, Whatever. Do you think... Do you think maybe obviously we're we're seeing the story from Alex's point of view? Do you think that Alex notices that more just because of how caring Abraham seemed? Maybe I think if she's not noticing it now, if it were to continue and Abraham were to continue having an active role, she would very quickly realize 
that she's getting good attention from Abraham and not good attention from Archie and Claudia. Yeah. Right. Like it took Max was a horrible, mean person to Alex for like three months. And it took two days for her to be like deeply invested in her relationship with him because he started treating her well. So I'm sure the same thing could happen with Abraham, (laughs) especially since Alex dreams about being the sidekick, like the dark sorceress of the dark confederation or whatever to that one to Abraham. (laughs) Yeah. Like the dark prince or something. Yeah. That's a good point too, because kind of the entire, uh, like, like before she went to Charmbridge in the first book, she was like this super, I want to be by myself, uh, you know, like she preferred staying home kind of person. And then when she went to Charmbridge, like she made friends really easily and she made a lot of friends too. I know she was close with really just Anna, but you know, they had a group of four or five, six friends that, that all hung out together. And so, um, maybe that will, uh, you know, maybe that's a consequence of the lack of attention she's getting from Claudia and Archie. And then maybe it's finally being realized by Alex here. It strikes me that, Alex is much more likable than she's made to seem when she's at home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because of exactly that. But we don't get that much interaction with Archie. Archie's like at work on Christmas. He works on Christmas Eve, all this stuff. Yeah, he finally does the readers a just huge solid and stays out of the stays story. Stays out of the chapter. <laughs> um, we do get the Seaberries coming over. For the housewarming gift, and much to my surprise, a relatively cordial interaction between Alex, Bonnie, and Brian. Right? They go upstairs because. And Alex is almost 13 years old. This would have pissed me off if my parents said this to me when I was 13 because Claudia said the adults needed to talk to each other. So those three go upstairs and. It's awkward, but it's not like Brian insulting Alex and telling her she's a horrible person and all this stuff. It's just Bonnie saying, I believe that you're a witch. (laughs) Could be offensive if she wasn't. Could be if she wasn't, yeah. (laughs) Apparently there's rumors around the school that Alex is a witch. True. Very interesting. I wonder who's spreading those. Gotta be Billy Bottle. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everybody thinks he's being mean, but he's saying it with fear. Like, please, (laughs) don't mess with her. She's a witch. Bonnie's (laughs) like, yeah, she is. (laughs) But Brian is still in denial, except for, I don't know if he's in denial. It feels like he accepts the situation. I think he knows, but he also wants to ignore it. He's like trying to protect Bonnie or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because Alex and him have a moment of understanding. It's like... Oh, man, we are just on the drug train today. It's like when my grandma saw her youngest child doing cocaine and heroin. Yeah, just And like then that. the next week said, no, she's sober. She hasn't done drugs in her entire life because she just wanted to ignore it. I can relate to that for sure. Can you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. Maybe we should have a drug podcast with me. <laughs> Lord. Anyways, um. Alex and Brian have an understanding, though, right? They like have a moment of understanding with each other. Where Alex just shuts Bonnie down so hard and just makes her so sad, you know, by telling her that she's not a witch, in fact, 
and then Brian drags Bonnie out of there. <laughs> it it appears to me that that them knowing that Alex is a witch and then obviously Bonnie being a young child, it's making their life difficult because Bonnie appears to be telling her mom that she believes Alex is a witch and all this stuff. Um, and so it's I, I think I think Brian believes that Alex is a witch. I think he's just saying like. Really, if if you just said no, I'm not a witch here, like you know, with his knowing glance, if he if he if she, if Alex said that there, then Bonnie would finally put that to rest, and their their lives would be much easier with their parents. That's precisely how I read that interaction as well. Uh, though what you said did strike a new idea in my mind. What if the Seaberries brought a housewarming gift because they were nosy? First off, yes. Second off, the Seaberries are bad people for story reasons. And for bad pun reasons. They just brought a housewarming gift to a house that was just rebuilt from a fire. They're real bastards. Yes, they are. But what if they're just nosy people? Well, they are, for sure, right? Yeah. Especially if Mrs. Seabury is the uh, Confederation's spy. Oh, true. Was that one of our running things? I think Baylor said that for a prediction one time. Nice. Yeah, I, I thought she was the person who was always watching Alex. Well, my prediction is Billy Bogleston has been Abraham Thorne on Polyjuice all along. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just to test her resolve throughout the years. Excellent. Wow. <laughs> We're going to have to have an episode with Crackpot theories. <laughs> We're going to have to do it. But more gifts get exchanged later on. Uh, Abraham give Ale- gives Alex a new locket. Uh, and she like hears his voice. Notably, when she opens it from his raven. So yeah. technically, he made an appearance in two straight chapters. True. So she has I a new locket, that. which is cool for her, and I'm sure Charlie is freaking psyched. I thought that um, the picture inside the locket t- spoke to her. It's hard to. We don't know for sure yet. I think because she tried to talk back to it and never got a response. You know. But she did hear Abraham's voice somehow. So this locket is probably special in the same way the last one was, just for different reasons. Um, Max gave Alex a cube that had a different moving picture on each face. And she opened it in front of her parents, in front of Archie and Claudia. And Archie, like, lost his mind. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. The poor guy. Uh, It's a nice gift from Max. Notably, Claudia, she, David had had has given Alex a cell phone at this point, and her mom is very concerned that David liked her because it obviously a cell phone is a big gift. But then, uh, yes, when that when, entire interaction is awkward, yeah, yeah. so awkward. I, I liked it. It's it as was, awkward as it would be in real yeah, life. Yeah, it was great. But then when Alex receives this cube, Claudia doesn't even care that a boy, a, a different boy, an old, probably an older looking boy, is giving her, one, a cube with pictures of them together that seem to be in a nurturing manner, and two, that they're moving magically. And so that was very suspicious to Alex. I just wanted to point that out. I'm, I'm pretty sure she does ask about the boy, but doesn't Alex like shut her down pretty quick and say, he's not my boyfriend either or something? Yeah. She doesn't press Alex nearly as hard with this one as she does with David giving a cell phone. And you know what? As a parent, I'm not a parent, but as a parent, I think you would be concerned if one of your daughter's friends gave her a $1,000 cell phone. 
for Christmas. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't jump to the, does this boy have a crush on you? And that kind of stuff. Are you using him? But regardless, that's an expensive gift for any friend to give another friend. This is going to be an inside joke on the podcast, actually. Inside story on the podcast. You are off the rails today. I am just bad. (laughs) Brady, you know our good friend from our hometown, the crippled drunken welder. What? (laughs) (laughs) We'll call him Mike for this case. Sure, Mike. Right. Do you know who I'm talking about? Okay, beautiful. One time, his 10-year-old daughter found his stash of cash that he kept at his house in case the banks failed because he was a little crazy of $5,000 in $100 bills and took it to school and gave them out to all of her friends. Oh, boy. Yeah, so... That was what you reminded me of there, talking about the fancy uh, phone and everything. Is just that story, right? So, David obviously is son to a crippled drunken welder. Yeah, um, who has a buttload of money. And if you're a drunken crippled welder, write in. Sure. Wow. Why um, not? <laughs> anyways, uh, if if you don't mind, I'll I'll get us back on track. Uh, what I was what I was saying about the picture cube. Uh, Alex actually brought up in the story, like she thought about that in the story, how it was suspicious that her mom didn't care about this magical cube. And so I thought it was important to make sure that was mentioned. Right. Do you have any theories about why? Do I have theories? Yeah. Why didn't well, she yeah, care? I, yeah, because we find out that she knows about Abraham Thorne and, and their world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she does. <laughs> Not a very long prediction. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of problems with what's going on here. Because you're right. Alex just finally tells Claudia, I met my father. His name's Abraham Thorne. I'm a witch. I can do magic. What the hell's your problem? Like, has this outburst, finally. And not only is Claudia not like, what are you talking about? She obviously knows what she's talking about. Yeah. What was the Obliviator doing? Nothing, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. I, obviously, there's something at play here we don't know yet. Maybe it, rather than just full obliviation, it's the thing where they pull the memories out of their head. And he only pulled anything pertaining to, you know, treasonous stuff. Sure. That Maybe. could be the case. Yeah. It's most interesting to me because she says, I don't want to hear, you know, your dad's name. I don't want to hear about your world, even though I know it exists. And that that was strange to me. Yeah, she says she wants nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with the magical world. Bonkers. Obviously something happened, like you said. She is a bad parent here. Like, we don't know exactly what happened to her, but her 12, almost 13-year-old daughter is, like, having a breakdown in front of her, trying to figure things out about her past, and she's like, ah, don't talk to me. Yeah. I don't want to hear about it. Get out of my face. Yeah, not great. But it's interesting that she obviously knows. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's interesting that she obviously knows and she hasn't tried to relate to her daughter on any level whatsoever regarding it. You know what I mean? I think we could have assumed that maybe she didn't know everything, but she had to know something with that magic locket being in her closet in the first book, right? Right. Yeah. Well, especially, I I mean... I mean, Alex says that she's a witch, and her mom basically says, I know. You know, like, she has to have known, she has to know something. 
she knows about Charmbridge. Like, she knows the name of the school. She asks about grades. She talks about Dean Grimm. All this mm-hmm. stuff. So, I really want to know what they took from her in terms of memories. Because uh, they took something, but obviously not just her total awareness of the magical world. And I really want to know why she's essentially okay with ignoring the situation, even at the expense of Alex. Yeah, there definitely has been been something happened, like you said. So, I don't know. It's very interesting, but there's not a lot to talk about because that's the whole scenario is like one paragraph. Yeah. She just doesn't want to know about the magical world. And Alex has finally confronted her about it. And again, it's like we were talking about earlier. This is precisely the kind of thing that will push Alex closer to Abraham and further from the people that don't want her around Abraham, I think. Yep. It'll be interesting. So, the chapter wraps up with a couple small details. Alex gets on the phone with David, and they we find out that David's got a crush on Angelique, and Alex cooks up some kind of harebrained plan to to see if Angelique likes David, but we don't know for sure what that is yet. And then she decides she's going to rejoin the J-Rock, which, first time I read this story, I was thrilled that she decided to rejoin that. She's obviously doing it because it, it's going to keep her closer to Max, I think. Yeah. yeah. But I like it because it keeps her closer to Shirtliff and to people that can like help her maintain some order in her life, since obviously her parents don't care, you know? Yeah, But I agree. Also, one other detail about the phone call with David is that she told David everything. She did. She did, yeah. Which was surprising She told to David me. everything. And in fact, we haven't mentioned it, but earlier in this section, she also told Anna what was going on. Yeah. And it was like one sentence where it says Alex told Anna everything that happened. But Alex is not keeping this a secret, even that she met with Abraham Thorne. Right. You know, it's very important stuff for her to... Uh, be telling people and she's telling them and I think it's a sign of growth because she's not hiding stuff from her friends. I think it's yeah. kind of funny too because one of the worst things you could do in the real world if you're trying to keep a giant secret is talk about it on a cell phone but I feel like this conversation's probably not being regulated by any government wizards because I doubt they could figure out cell phone technology. <laughs> if they're as incompetent as they're made to seem in the main series it's yeah. without question. <laughs> So you're you're saying that David's playing the long game? No, no, no. I'm saying that uh, <laughs> it seems like it was probably the wrong thing to do, but it was probably okay at the end of yeah. the day to talk about it over the phone. Right. I mean, couple the technology issues on top of the fact that David's a muggle-born, so who is he, who's he going to tell at home? Right. You know? Right. No one's going to understand it anyways. And it's good for Alex to have somebody to talk to. That's true. Yeah. You know, okay. since Especially she doesn't have anybody at her house. Yep. But that's the end of chapter 18. It's the end of this section. Uh, so let's do the ARC MVP real quick. Beautiful. Uh, Baylor, who did you choose? So I went with uh, David Washington. And he obviously played kind of a small part in these two chapters. But I just wanted to point out that he was an outlet uh, for Alex when she had no one else to confide in. And then it also seems like their friendship 
uh, took a turn over Christmas break, and I'm excited. Hopefully, he won't try to kill her or something, but I'm excited <laughs> to see how it, how it plays out. They must be better friends than the story lets on if he's buying her a $1,000 cell phone. You know what I mean? I mean, it does... When they drop him off or something, isn't it at a pretty rich-looking house, though? And, oh, like, a yeah. very nice neighborhood. It has ironclad yeah. gates in front of his house. Yeah. Uh, Delbert, who was your MVP? My MVP was Abraham Thorne, because you get the best of both worlds. He's a uh, criminal mastermind who's trying to overthrow the government, and even while not having seen you in 12 years, he's somehow your best parent. Nice. Very talented guy. <laughs> I went with Anna Chu uh, because Alex told her that she met with Abraham Thorne and it was such a non-event that her the whole conversation was one sentence long. So maybe Anna is giving Alex a little bit of breathing room now, which is a good thing for her to do. Which also yeah. nice to see her able to talk to Anna, especially at home, because isn't her dad like a prominent figure or something? Yeah. So just he is correspondence about Abraham Thorne entering his home without his knowledge. I don't know if Alex cares about that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if Alex is forward thinking enough to think about that necessarily. Yeah. But uh, we also need to name the arc. I'm going to say my title first because my titles are always the worst. Uh, if I was renaming this arc, I would rename it Parents. If they're not ignoring you, then they're probably a criminal. Wow. Moving on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> Delbert? Uh, daddy issues. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Also bad. <laughs> Looks like Baylor's the winner. Baylor, save the segment, please. Uh, mine was more questions than answers. Okay, good. Solid. Yep. Good choice. <laughs> I think we know which one's going to win here. Yeah. Listen, Fifty Shades of Grey, daddy issues. I mean, it's been a hectic episode. We're going to cast somebody now because I forgot to do it earlier. I forgot to stop for it earlier. Nice. Delbert, you wanted to recast Abraham Thorne. Yeah, we casted him off of just his, uh, I think just off of what we heard about him in a textbook the first time. Is that correct? I, I believe so. Um, yeah. It was the photo in the portrait on in the locket. Oh, that's right. Just off of his okay, locket. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we didn't have a lot to go on, but now we know who he is a little bit. We've met him. We know what he's been accused of. We know what he's saying about the government. And uh, I just wanted to see if anybody had any different castings for him now that we can put some more uh, character to the character. I do not. Sticking I'm with sticking Tony with Dalton. Tony Dalton. Uh, I can fully picture him being present for this conversation. Nice. Between him and Alex in this chapter. I can see it as Tony Dalton. Right. And so... I don't feel a need to change my particular personal casting. Okay. Baylor? I I am also going to have to stick stick with Keanu Reeves. Um, and that that's just because, you know, you see him in, in John Wick and other movies, obviously. Uh, but he plays like a stoic, calm, powerful character very well. Like in John Wick, it doesn't seem like he rages that much. Like, 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 uh, loudly rages or, or wildly rages he just like commonly shoots people in the head that steal his dog you know so <laughs> um i think keanu reeves would would play a, a great role uh, you know play this part really well my only concern is is that he i'm not sure how his southern accent is if it's as good as sam gabriel's 
for Abraham Thorne. So we'll see. I uh, I could see Keanu Reeves. Uh, I just watched the movie Speed for the first time. Oh, that's one of my favorite trashy movies. Uh, with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. And if you're talking about that Keanu Reeves, this makes no sense. No. But no, it does not. A later I'm... Keanu Reeves, like you described, makes perfect sense. I have never seen that movie, so that is not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Baylor, fantastic. Here's the plot of the movie really quickly in the middle of this segment. He gets on a bus that if it stops going below 55 miles an hour, it explodes. Oh, Rate wow. the movie without ever seeing it based off just that. Uh, three out of ten. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of being a quality movie, that's about right. Entertainment-wise, it's like it's an good. eight. Yeah, it's good. I yeah. liked it. Yeah. Speed 2, not nearly as good. <laughs> um, I'm glad that both of you can just judge a book by the cover and ignore everything that makes someone who they are, but I can't quite do that. So I wanted to cast someone new. I want someone that's powerful but can tell half truths and you know can play that political figure but also get down and dirty and who else than christian bale very similar to his batman portrayal sure yeah yeah that i think that would be pretty good that would be pretty good i thought you were gonna say kevin spacey for a second what? I don't know why. <laughs> you I started mean, describing you started describing this and my brain went, he's about to say Kevin Spacey. Maybe for Huckstein. <laughs> yeah, maybe for yeah. Huckstein. That's fair. <laughs> I believe one of the but characteristics no. of Abraham Thorne was that he was handsome, and I don't think Kevin Spacey fits that role. So there you go. That's our recasting of Abraham Thorne. Uh, I'm sure he'll make our list of important characters at the end, and I'm sure we'll stick with Tony Dalton. Seems like it, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, the other two options are obviously good as well. Christian Bale is, uh, oh, if we got him to play in a movie, we could ask him to lose like 300 pounds and he'd do it. He'd literally just show up skin and bone. Yeah. He's pretty skin and bone in Thor. It's uh, pretty wild. The yeah. new Thor movie, Love and Thunder. That cannot be good on his body. You know, it's interesting because he still does it, but then you also have um, Matt Damon who was supposed to be, like, really thin and malnourished in The Martian, and they just did it all with special effects, and you can't hardly tell. Yeah, I mean, that's what's easier, so. Yeah. Uh, Baylor, you made a prediction last episode. Why don't you replay that prediction now so that we can give it a grade? Okay, so... I think... First thing Abraham Thorne will do. Maybe I shouldn't say the first thing. One of the things that Abraham Thorne will do in this conversation is that he will clue Alex in on Max's mission that he has given him. Obviously, Max has this mission from the WJD, but I think Abraham Thorne has sent him on a mission as well. Alex will ask and get answers about Claudia and the Thorne Circle. And then in other news, in the next chapter, because I just remembered it will be Christmas break most likely, uh, Alex will tell Claudia about Abraham Thorne, and that will trigger the recessed memories, uh, and she will begin to remember the things that were obliviated by Diana Grimm. All right, hell of a prediction, turns out. Yeah, first half I wasn't sure, second half I was like, damn, okay. Yeah, the stuff about Abraham Thorne talking about Max's mission certainly didn't happen, but Alex did ask questions about Claudia and the Thorne Circle. She did confront Claudia about Abraham Thorne, 
who did either have repressed memories or just actual living memories of the situation. Nine out of ten for me. It's pretty good. Oh, nine, huh? I think I'm going to give it an eight. Nine feels a little bit high, just because there was obviously going to be some answers with meeting Abraham Thorne. I mean, I'm not going to give somebody a lower grade because their test said, what's two plus two? You know what? Fine. Nine. (laughs) I'm with you. That's fair. Nine as well. Nice. Very nice. Doing much better than last season, I think. What's your season average currently? Currently, I'm at a 5.79 average rating. Ooh, that is very close to passing. Yeah. Actually, it's less than last year. I finished with a 69% last year. Well, I guess it wasn't rating, so never mind. Well, let's see how we can turn that down by making your prediction for next week. Yeah. (laughs) Next week, we're going to be talking about chapters 19 and 20. Uh, Chapter 19 uh, for your prediction is called Dangerous Hearts, and chapter 20 is called Charlie the Thief. Excellent. So if you'd like to ask us a couple questions. I would, actually, yes. Um, And I've thought about these, uh, and honestly, these two chapter titles weren't the the most giving, I would say, of information. Um, But for you, Brady, let's start with you. Uh, What does Charlie steal this time? Charlie steals a number of things, uh, trinkets and the like, but he also steals another coin. And this coin, I would say, is more dangerous than the Moore's Mortis coin. Interesting. Well, okay. Um, Delbert, for you, whose hearts does the chapter title dangerous hearts refer to it refers to the poor beaten broken shattered possibly heart of david washington who stands idly by as the kingdom burns to the ground (laughs) wow that's exhilarating hmm okay So for my prediction, I believe that Alex and David will put into action Alex's plan to see if Angelique likes David. The chapter is titled Dangerous Hearts because David gets let down by Angelique and is heartbroken. In the next chapter, Charlie will once again steal a Moore's Mortis Society coin. But this time, instead of a map to get to the Moore's Mortis Society meetings, the coin will have a simple message on it. Maximilian is in the lands below. Okay. That's, uh... Of all the predictions it's... you've ever made, that's one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty horrible. We'll see what happens. Nothing about a kingdom burning to the ground in your prediction, I noticed. Yeah, I don't totally know <laughs> what the hell you're talking about with a kingdom, man. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Neither do I. Okay. Uh, that's our episode for this week. Uh, you've learned... Much more about Delbert than you ever wanted to know, and uh, it was a pretty fun discussion. As a reminder, next week we'll talk about chapters 19 and 20 of Alexander Quick, 
and the lands below. Do you guys have anything you'd like to say real quick before we sign off? Yeah, if you want to learn more about my family, send us an email. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, Delbert has agreed um, to disclose any information up to and including bank account information of oh. members of his family. Ooh. We'll see. Oh. Um, I would like to say a couple words. Guadalajara. Oh. Okay. What? <laughs> Were those words? <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. I'm reading my damn mind. We're going to have to go ahead and end this podcast here. Uh, I just wanted to toss out there. We didn't mention this, but the Moore's Mortis curse on the coins was a bunch of crap. I've been Brady. Oh, it was. It had something to do with stuff. I've, I've been Delbert. I fear choking as my death one of these days. I've been Baylor. We'll see you next Sunday. Good night. This was off the rails. Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs)